Well, welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And today I have a special guest, Dennis Skupinski, with the Michigan's Military Heritage Museum in Jackson, Michigan. He worked on the Michigan History Section of the United States World War I Centennial Commission, which is an amazing online resource for military history. Today, we're going to talk about some stories from Michigan's World War I history. Welcome, Dennis. Thank you for taking time to be on the podcast today. Well, nice to meet you, Michael, and I can hardly wait to start telling the stories because there's so many of them. (laughs) Well, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself first? Uh, How did you become involved with preserving uh, Michigan's military history? Well, I got involved about 10 years ago, and I was unemployed. I was looking for a job, and I was basically the digital marketing manager, and I was going to these uh, luncheon group meetings with the local Ann Arbor Marketing, where they had a lot of creative digital marketing people there. And I wanted to do something to promote my skills, you know, to show people what I could do. So I uh-huh. they said, well, do something you love. So I collected World War I uniforms for, since I was a kid. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to do a thing for the World War I Centennial. I'll do a monthly, sort of like what you're doing, a monthly blog. Or, but right. I did video. And so every month I'd choose a topic and, you know, I start on that. And I, I started in uh, June of 2012 and worked all the way up to uh, December of 2019. And then I stopped because wow. that was, you know, covering the World War One. So there's like 90 some episodes plus some other editions and documentaries I did on World War One units. So that's where I, you know, then I got involved with the Centennial um, Commission with Michigan. And that's where I was able to do the website, which is www.cc.org slash Michigan, where I was able to compile all this stuff, the videos, biographies, uh, where the statues are for World War One in Michigan, all sorts of information there, and so it was, it was really like a you know a big project, about ten year project, and so I sort of became wow. the expert in World War One history for Michigan, and I met Scott uh, Garish, who was a, one of the co-founders of the museum, as he was a disabled veteran, and one of his projects was to start a museum, and he wanted to do a military museum, and I. I went to Yankee Air Museum where he was volunteering and we met and, you know, that was 2014. And we Mm -hmm. opened a museum in 2016 and now we moved to Jackson because of our lease ended and we need a bigger facility. So now we're in Jackson and we're still doing the same sort of stuff. You know, we've got a military museum and we're just trying to present history, you know, the way it was by showing people original artifacts and uniforms. Wow, that's awesome. So one of the stories that we spoke about when we first talked was about uh, Major General Harry Hill Bandholtz from Constantine, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Could you tell the audience a little bit about his story? Yeah, um, Harry Hill Bandholtz graduated from the military academy. And one of the things he was assigned to do during the um, Spanish-American War and afterwards the Philippines insurrection was he was in a constabulary force out in the Philippines. And about five or six times, he walked into the villages of these native tribes that were against the United States, you know, against basically anybody ruling the Philippines, walked into the camps of the natives and sat down with the um, 
tribal chief and then walked out with a, a treaty with them agreeing to, you know, be under the watchful eye of the U.S. constabulary force. And so he did that like five or six times, and he caught the eye of uh, General, well, at the time it was uh, Captain Pershing. But then when World War I, I came, uh, Pershing wanted, because of his experience with the constabulary force in the Philippines, made him a provost marshal in Europe, which was the first time there was there was actually someone in charge of the military police. And we had a force of like two million men over there. So what uh, Van Holtz did was get newspaper reporters and ex-policemen and start training people on how to believe, how to become a military policeman, not just, you know, the people directing traffic, but also investigations because there were like murders and kidnappings and robberies, especially big robberies of the United States supplies over there. So he became basically the father of the military police. Wow. And what really made him famous was after the war, he was part of the um, peace negotiation team in the country of Hungary after the the Austro-Hungarian Empire split. And so it was rotated between the United States, Great Britain, and France. Each day a new person would become president. And so it was Banholtz Day uh, in October of 1919, when the Romanians came to the National Museum of Hungary with about 20 army trucks and were going to load up some of the supplies they had of the, the uh, treasures from Hungary that they thought was theirs because they got a piece of the Hungarian Empire. Well, Banholtz wow. heard about this, marched down to the museum, put some tape across the door, and had the only thing he had was a U.S. censor little stamp about the size of a quarter and he stamped it across his tape across the door because he knew Europeans respected stamps like that. And wow. he stood there with his riding crop <laughs> and he managed to dissuade the um, Romanians and, you know, to have them drive off or drive away without stealing the treasures of the Hungarian museum. And so the Hungarian people felt, you know, thankful to him. And in 1936, they put a statue in downtown Budapest of uh, Harry Hill Banholtz holding his riding crop in his little stamp. Wow. That's quite a story. Yes, it is. So, I mean, he was quite a character. And that's one of the stories, that's one of the stories you don't hear about in in World War I. And and the statue was moved around a a couple of times and basically recently restored back uh, somewhere in the Bush administration. They took it down. And then it was in a warehouse somewhere in Hungary, and they, and as soon as the the wall came down, Eastern Europe was liberated. That uh, they pulled out the statue and put it there, put it back up and on, on display. Wow, that's an amazing story. Yes, and he was is. from Constantine. Is that yes, was he was. So he's buried out there. He's in. Uh, uh, I believe he's in West, either National um, Arlington or West Point. I'm not sure. Which oh, I gotcha, but. But he's originally from the Constantine, yes. Michigan area. And That's after cool. the, he retired, he moved back and lived there because he was a big stamp collector. Wow, what a guy. All right, so the other story we talked about was uh, Frederick Zinn. He was from Battle Creek, and he pioneered a system that the military uses to recover lost airmen even today. Is that right? Yes. He graduated from the University of Michigan in 1914, and part of his sort of, you know, debut to the world, he went on a tour of Europe, which happened to be in 1914 in August, war was declared, and he wanted to do something. Even though he was of German descent, he joined the French Foreign Legion. 
And so for two years, he fought as an infantryman. In 1916, he was wounded and decided to get into the Air Corps. And wow. then he became an observer and started taking photographs of the you know, trench lines and stuff in uh, German um, behind the lines and became an expert at that. And then also he, at the end of the war, well, then when the United States got into it, Billy Mitchell pulled him over to be, become part of the photographic section for the U.S., uh, well, Signal Corps, Air Corps at the time. And so he was, you know, one of the leading observers for the United States uh, Air Service at the time. I don't say Air oh. Force because that didn't happen until 20-some years later. So it was just right. a service. But he had like two years' experience where all these green recruits were coming yes. in. They had none. So he was obviously the right man for the job for them at that time. Right. And then after the yeah. war, he wanted to find all, of his, all these lost uh, pilots and observers and stuff. So he traced their – he got the flight records and traced their past. And he went to Berlin and was working in the office of Ernest Udet, who was a German, German famous ace, and was locating – he found like, I think – 195 out of 200 of the lost uh, airmen mm-hmm. after the war was you know found their graves and brought their bodies back to the United States and did the same wow. thing during World War II. But then I guess the Air Force decided, well, the Army Air Corps at the time decided they didn't want to do that anymore. So then he joined the OSS and became basically a spy because they were part of the CIA, well, became the CIA. So he went over to Europe and was doing the same sort of thing, helping uh, airmen that were shot down. Wow. And I was reading up about him over the weekend. I, I understand that the one of the the men that he recovered was the was Quentin Roosevelt, the youngest son of Theodore right. Roosevelt, which is partly why he got a lot of national recognition for that as well, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was, I mean, a, if you, he was a pretty uh, smart guy and pretty brave, too, f- for some of the things he did. Yeah, so, we, and I think they attribute that you know the whole system with serial numbers on airplane parts and everything yeah. else now is is all from his plan. That's amazing. So when on the uh, Centennial website, it also mentions that we had three World War One fighter aces that were from Michigan. Yes, we did. Yeah, the first one who, who had eight kills or eight victories is Darcy Ham or Hilton, uh-huh. and. He was um, born in Toronto, but and he lived in Michigan for a long time, but joined the um, Royal Flying Corps. And so he had eight victories. The next one was uh, Edward uh, Grange, and he had five victories. He was born in Lansing, and he joined the Royal Navy Air Service. So both of these wow. guys were, you know, with, their, with the British. None of them were with the United States. Well, these two, first two weren't with the United States. And the last right. person who was was um, Kenneth Porter from Dawajik. And, I mean, he was the only Michigan ace that was in the U.S. Air Corps at the time. So he had five. And so that's wow. so we only had three people that were considered aces. But we did have one famous person who most people don't know about. He was, a, he was in the Air Corps with the Marines, and he was an aerial gunner, a gunnery sergeant. And uh, he was pretty famous because he got the Medal of Honor. And that was Robert wow. Guy um, Robinson from Nankin Township, which is now Westland. Wow. And so it's not too much is written about him because in Michigan is because he enlisted, I believe it was in New York. And so they attributed him to New York instead of where mm-hmm. he grew up and lived because he lives in, was born in Nankin Township. And then after the war, he lived in St. Ingus. 
Oh, okay. So, so he, was, he was a congressional or the Medal of Honor winner. And what he does, he was an aerial gunner, which meant there was a pilot in front of him and he was behind and he shot down a number of German planes and after getting his elbow shot off and stuff. So he was, a, you know, when the on the Medal of Honor, but most people don't know about him because he hasn't attributed Michigan because he enlisted in other states. So. Wow. And another name I saw on your uh, Centennial website that probably a lot of people would recognize is Ty Cobb. Yes. Uh, he was, you know, <clears throat> served over there. Yeah, it was, was it? Uh, it was interesting because Ty Cobb was one that, well, he was in his mid-30s at the time, and he tried to en- enlist. But that was after the end of the 1917 baseball season because war wasn't declared until April 6th of 1917. And really the United States didn't get moving with anything because they weren't really prepared to accept soldiers or anything until the fall of 1917. And by then, the baseball season was over. So he went down to Georgia mm-hmm. afterwards and tried to enlist. But they you know, they were going to take younger people before him because he was in his mid-30s, and they prefer people in their you know, early 20s. Right. So he went to Washington, D.C. and pulled a few strings and got involved with the Chemical Corps. And then he got, so he, they made him a captain and he went over to France and was part of the training group that was training people how to handle the gas. So they had various tests that they had to run through to make sure they knew how to handle, put on their gas mask. Where they went mm-hmm. into a tent and they released some like tear gas just to, you know, get you, so it wouldn't kill you, but at least, you know, you knew what the effects of gas could be and to see how right. fast you could get your gas mask on if you could do it right. And apparently there was an accident and, Something went wrong, and he took in, took in too much uh, of the gas, and it was you know was sick for a, a couple of weeks afterwards, and that wow. eventually killed him because it caused it caused him um, tuberculosis in him about ten years later. Oh wow! So that was the, where it all started with him. Yes, and he came back and played baseball oh, for yeah. at least yeah. one more season. Yeah. Yes, he did. But I mean, say in re- ten years is and, and he never really recovered from that you know, right. burning up his lungs with that gas. So I guess he took wow. it. Suppose I've taken in a lot of it. So, wow. That's a kind of a sad story with, with that. But, and some of the other people that uh, were on the home front was Henry Ford, um, had a, played an important role with the home front from Michigan in world war one. Right. Yes. Henry Ford was like sort of the elephant in the room where, you know, people talk about like the polar bears from Michigan or, you know, some yeah. of the aces and stuff, but Henry Ford, not just in the state, but in the whole country, actually in the world, was a real powerful force because in 1915, he launched the Oscar II, which is a ship he leased to take these peace activists to go over to Europe and try to settle the First World War. And they were joking, there was jokes about him because they were saying he was going to buy the countries off because he had so much mm-hmm. money. And, right. and Henry Ford was person that started the peace movement because before this Oscar II trip that he took with, with about a couple hundred of the peace activists, the peace activists were always laughed at, made fun of, and they weren't covered by the news. If they had, And they're mostly women, too. So they'd go mm-hmm. to a um, country, they'd go see some you know, other representatives, and they were mostly laughed at, never put down an official register of, of being uh, visitors and stuff. But with Henry Ford, once he's donated money and once they went on this trip, all of a sudden they had to respect Henry Ford because he was right. buying them with, you know, a lot of their goods for the war, like trucks and stuff of like that and money. So all mm-hmm. of a sudden now 
the peace activists are getting news publicity, they're getting a following, and they're getting an organization, and they're getting good press. And wow. so he's been, and he donated to the him and his wife donated a lot of money to the peace group and women's uh, peace and women's uh, feminist uh, uh, votes were the two big things that sort of, you know, Henry Ford was working on, Henry and Mrs. Ford. So and wow. they, they were basically the same type of people that were doing both of them. The, you know, suffragettes and the peace movement were basically the same. And so wow. he put them on the map. That's that's quite something. I, that's, a, that's information I'd never heard before in yes. school or anything like that. That's, that's... You know, then to say World War II came, the peace movement was already formed. They've had, mm-hmm. you know, the, well, the same people were doing it. They were able to send out fundraising letters. And, you know, then mm-hmm. afterwards, like Vietnam. In fact, one of the ladies lived out by Battle Creek. She was a chicken farmer, uh, Rebecca mm-hmm. Shelley. And she was a big, a, during, big person in the peace movement during World War One. She started off wow. on the on um, 1915 going to The Hague with as a basically an intern. But then because she went on that, she was a big person in Michigan fundraising. And so she got like a $10,000 check from Mrs. Ford at the time, which is now about a million dollars. And she also wow. went on the Oscar, too, and became the secretary for the peace movement. They didn't wow, call themselves a peace movement. It was like so suffragettes or I'm trying to remember the exact feminist movement name, but you know, she was a secretary, so she was one responsible for sending out the newsletters and things like that. So Wow. So we also uh Michigan also had the first African American Red Cross nurse, uh Frances Elliott Davis. Yes. And that this is an interesting story because um her grandparents were white. And her mother was white, but her mother fell in love. They were on a plantation in North Carolina. Her mother fell in love with a Creole African-American. And oh, so they okay. had the baby, which is Francis. But at the time, you know, 100 some years ago, uh, basically the father had to leave. The mother, you know, had to put the uh, daughter up for adoption. But the mother died and the father, you know, they didn't see him again. Oh. So here she is, an African-American, you know, white, basically, you know, part Indian, part black and part white. And wow. so they treated her as a black and she was, a, you know, basically an orphan. And they, you know, so she went through the orphanages and stuff and the child care, um, foster care until she was old enough to go to school. There was a family in Philadelphia that took her in. She was also a servant there, but they made sure she got an education because she wanted to be a teacher. When she became a teacher, she graduated from Knox City College in Knoxville and decided that she wanted to become a nurse because she wanted to save babies. So she went to Mm -hmm. Washington, D.C., and she got, you know, in in a medical school there for nurses. And when when World War I broke out, she applied to become a Red Cross nurse, but they weren't accepting African-American nurses. And so they finally they did, and they gave her a pin that said 1A. Normally they give a a Red Cross pin with a number on it, but hers was 1A, and the A stand for African. So, and they wouldn't let her go overseas, so she was stuck in the United States. She served in Tennessee during the war and after the war because of the, they had the course, the pandemic back in 1918, 1919, or the Spanish flu. So like what Mm -hmm. we went through. 
And then she, after 1919, she moved to Detroit and got involved with Detroit uh, medical organizations and formed a nursery out in Inkster, which was uh, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt came out in the mid-1930s to help fundraise for. And she was a pretty famous uh, person in Detroit. Her husband played the piano. He had a PhD in music and taught music lessons. She was really big in the start as far as the medical industry goes as far as nursing and was really in trying to improve the lives of black children in Detroit. And this is because also, and before World War One, there wasn't a large black population in Detroit. But once World War One came, and they could no longer get immigrant workers from Eastern Europe, they started recruiting Southerners. Well, most of the Southerners that came up were black, and they formed into communities. And that's where, you know, and of course, African-Americans were separated from the whites, and so they didn't have the same facilities. So she wanted to make sure that they had, you know, they were getting medical facilities so they wouldn't get sick and die. So, Wow, she's quite a lady. Yes, she was. Wow. Any other, uh, like, military stories that um, you want to tell us about, about Michigan on World War One or? Well, one of the things I, I did when I was during the World War One centennial was instead of concentrating on military, mm-hmm. like battles and soldiers and stuff, one of the things I worked on was trying to get more people involved by doing things like industry. And one of the things that Michigan Michigan contributed to the uh, Great War was it's an industrial might, and that was the assembly line. Because of mm-hmm. the assembly line, we could take things such as uh, um, you know, an airplane and stuff, break it down into small parts and have unskilled labor make these various small parts and assemble them in about, you know, one-tenth of the time they could in Europe. Like in Europe, they when they built an airplane, they had a crew work on one airplane at a time so that one airplane got done, the next airplane came, but parts from one airplane wouldn't necessarily fit on the other airplane because each one was, you know, hand-fitted. We're in the United wow. States... We built all the parts the same, so they were interchangeable, and they were faster to build, and we didn't need skilled labor. And this wow. is probably the biggest contribution because, you know, not only could we, you know, provide the world with automobiles, but we could all we did the same thing with tanks, trucks, you know, artillery pieces, and basically everything like that. And a lot of the uh, assembly line uh, technology was pioneered under Henry Ford. Yes. And he tried to do the same thing with boats and he made Mm -hmm. the Eagle boat, which is a a submarine patrol boat. And there were a few challenges because boats are not exactly like automobiles. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) And so there were a couple of, I mean, they were, they were eventually got seaworthy, but there were a few things with the hulls and stuff that needed to be with, with ships. You have to do, do a little bit different than you do with other things. So, and just like yeah. he, he also had a rubber plantation, he figured, well, you know, if trees should be 10 feet apart, if we make them eight feet apart, we can get that many more in. Well, nature didn't work that way either. Yeah. <laughs> no, but he well, was, another, another, another manufacturing story that you had on there was about William Boeing. Oh, yes. Yep. And that was amazing to me. I had not heard that story. He was born in Detroit. Yes. And he had a famous sister, too, who uh, married one of the um, – commanders of the 16th Regiment of Engineers, uh-huh. John Hudson Poole, who would be, well, if, uh, uh, 
uh, Clara Bowling became famous because she donated a bunch of Indian artifacts to the Will Rogers Museum in Los Angeles. The, her brother, Bill Bowling, you know, grew up mm -hmm. in Detroit because her father was a wealthy industrialist who was in mining and uh, mm -hmm. uh, lumber. And so she was like sort of the, the girl from Detroit, you know, the rich girl from Detroit that everybody wanted to marry. And so she, <laughs> she married this army guy who uh -huh. West Point graduated. Then he was, after a couple of years in the military, he dropped out. But then when World War I came, he got back in. And, uh, and he was, they were, they were sort of the famous family of Detroit because when this 16th Engineers Regiment formed, they were the, it was early 1917, like in May. And so they were the first and only volunteer regiment from Michigan. And they went uh -huh. overseas early, like in August of 1917, to build the infrastructure for the rest of the army to come over. Because the army, uh -huh. we could get the army to the coast of France, but in order to get them from the coast of France to the front lines, everything traveled by rail. So you have to have train tracks, you have to have uh -huh. cars, you have to have warehouses. And, every, and assembly and camps on the way. So that's what the 16th Regiment of Engineers did, which is, you know, that's how wow. I got, found out about Carolyn Bowling and Bill Bowling. And, you know, he mm -hmm. he went out west in 1916 and started playing with airplanes and, you know, <laughs> things took yeah. off from there. Yeah, and I guess after the war, he went into the, the commercial line of airplanes. So right. we have a lot of the passenger airplanes today, uh Yes. Or Boeing, you know. Yes, so. and people don't realize that Boeing was from Michigan. Yeah, that's I that's think an it amazing. Always was a Seattle or a West Coast phenomenon, but no, he was grew up here in Detroit, you know. And wow, huh? So if somebody um, wants to find out about uh, Michigan's Military Heritage Museum, let's talk a little bit about the museum and some of the, the the tours or events that you offer and maybe how they can get a hold of you and find you online and that sort of thing. Okay. Yeah. The Michigan's military heritage museum is located at 311 North Wisner in Jackson, Michigan. Uh -huh. And that's near the corner of uh, Wildwood and Wisner. We're about a mile away from the Walmart there in Jackson airport. And so it's one of the busier intersections in Jackson and we're online at um, Michigan's military heritage museum, MI mhm.org and okay. so you can find us there we also have a facebook page which we post our events in fact on may 7th is going to be museum day so there's free admission to the museum from mm -hmm. 10 to 4 and we're going to be having a garage sale basically then we've got a bunch of items for sale so if you want to come by and visit us you know a lot yeah. of historical tapes and CDs and you name it. We probably have books, so mm -hmm. reenactors, uniforms, and things. So, I mean, we've got all sorts of things there. <laughs> well, that sounds like a lot of fun, and people mm -hmm. get to learn at the same time. So, yep. that's really one of the important. things I stress about our museum is that right now we have a special exhibit for Vietnam. So, we've got about oh, 10 mannequins, some Australian Arvin Army Republic of Vietnam and the North Vietnamese and also the National Liberation Front Viet Cong mannequins there plus some U.S. mannequins and paraphernalia of the time besides our regular displays of, of you know Vietnam forces and one of the things we like to do at the museum is have full mannequins and also 
a lot of the artifacts from the period because we want to put history out there so you can see what the soldiers were wearing, if we mm-hmm. had what the enemy was wearing, what went on as far as the press and other things go, and then sort of let you decide, you know, what what went on there and who was right, who was wrong, and whatever right. else. Well, well, that's a, a very unique approach to the museum, uh, and I, I think that's awesome. We get people just to, to see what it is and make their own conclusions, you know? Yes. And saying the best nice. way to do that is by providing, you know, original artifacts there. And yeah. say this like well, that, that I was talking to you before about the letter regarding um, Camp Blair, which is where our museum was located back in uh-huh. the, during the Civil War time. Uh, where our museum located now used to be the quartermaster commissary building for Camp Austin Blair, where soldiers from Michigan would come and then they'd be mustered out of the service there. And we've got a diary of some letters from a guy who's describing what went on there and the base and everything. And it's Uh really fascinating. And we're going to be setting up a display in the next few months once we finally get done going through all the letters and figuring out what we need to do at display. Wow. That sounds like a lot of, a lot of work and a lot of uh, fascinating history you uncover along the way. Yes, and that's the interesting yeah. thing. What happens is once you dive into something, you then you find all these little, you know, wormholes yeah. to go down. And then there's this one, that one, and you yeah. know, just, you it just put it all seems, in the timeline. Yeah, yeah, it just never seems to end, you know. And for what you thought would be a little project, now you've got all sorts of things going on, and all these yep. things related to history all interweave and. That's what we're saying. We're trying to tell the story so people understand what Michigan did for the military and what the military did for Michigan. Right. And the earliest war that Michigan was involved in. Oh, no, it was a revolutionary war. Because, revolutionary war. Okay. Yes, yeah. Because we fought the British and it was, in fact, we have a cannon from Fort Detroit when the, in 1794, when the British finally, you know, uh, left uh, Fort Detroit to the Americans. They didn't want to leave their cannons, so they took them out in the middle of the river and burned their uh, casings and stuff, and the cannon sank. So, yeah, it was a Revolutionary War, Fort Detroit and Fort Michelin Mackinac. Wow, that's amazing. So, you've got artifacts from basically every war the country's yes. ever been involved in. That's, yes. that's one little known war which we're working on right now is. We're having one of our uh, young interns do it. Uh, we're learning about the Toledo War. Oh yeah, <laughs> and even people it really wasn't a, wasn't and really a war, but they call it. That. But yeah. they did have two armed militias go out in the woods, and there was yeah. and, and, and it was important in Michigan statehood because it determined the southern boundary of Michigan. Correct. And so then yep. there's important players involved, such as Robert E. Lee, you know, Lewis Cass. This, you know, yep. I mean. Thomas Jefferson. So there's yep. a lot of people involved in it that are famous. And there's and you also you learn a lot about, you know, state powers and the Constitution yeah. of the United States. And yeah, so. out of that, out of that whole uh, upset with Ohio, you could call it that yep. we ended up getting the Upper Peninsula is uh, yes. Which I think we came out better in the deal in the long oh, run. Yeah, we did. <laughs> <laughs> nobody wants Toledo. <laughs> That's right. Nobody wants Toledo. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on the, the podcast today. I've been talking with Dennis Kupinski with the Michigan Military Heritage Museum in Jackson. It's been a fascinating talk. Um, thanks for coming along with me today. Oh, thanks, Michael. 
And that's going to do it for today's uh, journey through history here on Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. If you want to find out more about me, you can check out michaeldelaware.com. I'll put the link down in the description. I'm also going to put the links that Dennis mentioned in the interview today down in the description so you can find out about the Military Heritage Museum and maybe schedule a visit for yourself and your family. Thanks for listening today, and I will be here next time when you want to take a journey down into Michigan's past. Thanks for listening.